Knock, knock. Oh, uh, who's there? Another fantastic episode of Data Dots, focused on, you know, throwing away all of those pounds of operating system weight with unikernels. That's not how a knock-knock joke works. Are you supposed to say, like, a witty name, and then I add the word who to it? I mean, fine, okay, say all of that that I just said, and add who at the end. What, what, like an owl man? Come on. (laughs) Oh, boy. Howdy, I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on the Twitters. And with me is my co-host who puts ketchup on his hot dogs. Bad, bad, Ethan. Shame. Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. And this is the Data Knots podcast. You can find this at all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packupushers.net. So as I alluded to, we're going to be talking about Unicurtle, something we've visited in the past, but certainly worth another look, especially after I got back from a trip to Norway and saw Include OS. So I'd like to welcome our special guest, Pierre. If you'd like to introduce yourself to the Data Nuts audience, uh, we'll continue down this nerdy path. Yeah. So hi, guys. I'm Per Bud. I work uh, for Include OS, where I'm currently the CEO. Short, sweet, and to the point. I like that. I guess where I wanted to start was around a conversation that we had a little bit earlier over the past couple of weeks, uh, especially after seeing your great presentation at the Bergen VMware User Group presentation. Take us down memory lane. I guess what we're trying to do is figure out what is a unikernel, but also how did we get there? And I know you yeah. have a good story about that. Yeah. So when I introduce unikernels, I typically try to explain to people why the systems that we use currently, why they are the way they are. If we sort of go back to the 50s and the 60s, um, we would have systems that would process punch cards. And the way that would work is that you would sort of produce your punch cards and then you would sort of submit them into a stack. And during the night, you might have a time slot. Uh, It would read your punch cards, do the compute, and then sort of output the data somehow. So, so these were batch-oriented, so they, they were extremely, extremely efficient because basically when the computer was focused on your job, it didn't do anything else. So in terms of efficiency, we're, we're about 100% efficiency. However, the, the user interface, the user experience was, was really, really bad because if there was like a, a syntax error on, on your punch card, you might not notice until you come back the next day and you notice that there is no results because you missed the semicolon. Yeah, I kind of wonder how you bug trace that, you know? <laughs> yeah. What's the what's the error reporting on couldn't compile punch cards, but but yeah, <laughs> that that does sound that sounds horrible. I'm glad I didn't live in those days. No, I, I agree. It wasn't ideal. At the time also there's also one another thing to sort of keep in mind and computers were expensive. They were, I don't know, I'm guessing $5 million a piece or something like that, quite a lot of money. And I think like these two things, the fact that the sort of user experience was very inefficient and the fact that they were so expensive meant if we could figure out a way to sort of share the computing resources, that would be great. And that gave birth to basically these timeshare systems. I don't think Unix was was one of the first, but that definitely was one of the the one, maybe the one that sort of grew, became the most uh, popular one. So uh, as, it, as it so happens, there were these two guys and they had a Ken Thompson and, and Dennis Ritchie, who I think by accident more or less uh, ended up on the PDP-11 and they ended up creating Unix. 
and time sharing is an important concept in in Unix. So you have this uh, as you sort of if you sort of log into a Unix system, you you have your own shell, you have your files there, you have your your own processes there. If you, Chris, if you log into the same server, you'll see your files and your processes there, and the system sort of tries to keep this thing apart. However, every time that you try to sort of partition hardware in software, that's sort of really, really hard to do that efficiently. So the the design that sort of has led to sort of Unix and and basically almost every other operating system is kind of inefficient because as the CPU tries to sort of swap out one process with with another, it sort of needs to flush its various caches uh, and that sort of leads to lower utilization. And and this is back in the days when we're talking about a single kind of execution thread per processing chip right i mean before yeah, the days of absolutely. hyper-threading and multi yeah yeah i can i can yeah. see that limited amount of cache every time you have to kind of context switch between one user request and the other which adds overhead yeah makes sense yeah and 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 so but the, the interesting bit of course is that that's the basis for the design of the operating systems we have today however what, what has happened since like the i would say since the 70s is that during like the 80s and the 90s we had basically the commoditization of servers so with sort of the intel chips and and then linux came along and servers dropped from sort of costing millions of dollars to then costing tens of thousands of dollars and now they're sort of uh, actually more or less free so i can go to amazon or google and i can sign up and I can have like servers that are running forever free or free for a year or the cost is more or less zero. However, the the, the operating system we're using, that, that it's kind of still sort of adapted to these huge vertically scaled computing resources. Uh, and I think like that's, that's kind of a, a mismatch. And that is one of the things that sort of led us to where we are. Also, I mean, I think Probably 99% of the virtual servers out there, they only have they have one user and they're only running one application. Well, that so, was kind of the goal, right? We had I, I know when I was moving into virtualization, we used to try to find a play, kind of squeeze an application onto a physical server that had the yeah. room for it without causing a conflict. You know, from a port perspective, or you know, if something was really heavy CPU, we'd put it on a more memory bound system. And so it was yeah. kind of like playing Tetris for applications. The idea originally of doing one application for VM felt very wasteful, but at the same time, you could spin up VMs for free. So, you know, you had way more servers, but they were a virtual and they were using less resources. So it kind of like had the, the net result of more partitioning at the cost of more inefficiencies from an overhead side. Absolutely. So with that lead up to get us to unikernels, I mean, the question could be asked. So let's back up a step. We've got scale-out systems now. We've got uh, all kinds of different virtualization platforms, and there's a lot of interesting ways that we could use unikernels, uh, therefore. We've got all this infrastructure that we could be running them on, but unikernels haven't really set the world on fire yet. So uh, I guess a fair question, why aren't we using unikernels really for everything? Why haven't we headed in this direction? 
Yeah. Um, no. So so um, I think also we we skipped what the unicorn is. I actually never got to that point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I think like maybe uh, I should maybe try to explain what the unicorn is. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've now like over the last year, I think I've told this to like 500 people. So so I, I think I can do it really quickly now. Basically, it's very simple. They have a library operating system, which basically means that instead of the operating system being written as an application, it's written written as a library. Then you take your application, your web server or IRC server or mail server or whatever it is, and you link it with that library. So you inject the operating system into the application itself. That means that you take the bootloader, you take the networking driver, you take the IP stack, your memory management system, and you inject it all into the application. And then your application basically becomes the operating system. Or it, you can take your application and you can just boot it. So if you write your hello world, actually, that's one of the things we typically do when we give a talk is to write hello world. And then we have a bootable version of hello world, which is kind of cool. You can also sort of, that application then is sort of supremely portable. I can take the same application, I can run it on my Mac, and I can run it on your Windows machine if you have VMware installed or or something else. Or I can ship it to Google Compute or, or ESXi, or I can run it basically anywhere because the only thing that that application requires is an x86 virtual machine, and those are very similar, except that I think like the networking card is is typically the the, the only difference between one virtual server and another. So that's which, that's what... Which is why it's always the network. That's why it's always yeah. a problem, because it's just not... <laughs> Sorry, that I had... I, so anyway, so so going back to the... Yeah. So now that we have the unikernel kind of defined, I think at a nice high level, going back to what Ethan was saying, why aren't they just ubiquitous in the data center, public cloud, et cetera, as, as the platform for running applications? Because it sounds like Nirvana. Yeah, it, it's not really Nirvana. I mean, it's, it's kind of... They are... Currently, I think like they're kind of cumbersome to use because they're so vastly different, and that that what also makes them them fun and exciting, and and also that that what gives them their their edge is that they are built on completely different principles. But but like once the a unicorn application is up and running, you can't like log into it in any way, so you have to sort of figure out new ways to manage it. Because it's it's not an OS that you would typically go and and, and refer to with um, whatever your management methodology might be, uh, you know, WMI or SNMP or whatever. None of that's there. You don't have a shell to interact with. That's not there. No, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. 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 So so I think like that in itself is the sort of biggest hindrance to adoption, and also sort of I don't think they're necessarily they aren't really out there to sort of kill anything. I mean, like they want end Linux or Windows or or any other operating system that are there. They're very much sort of a complementary technology. Okay, so then, so you see them as, as a complementary technology, meaning the traditional uh, operating systems that we have, they're, they're still going to offer value where we still need them. It's not like we're just stuck with them through inertia. We... We actually still need them, and they still have a role to play, and unikernels are going to fill a, a different role alongside of them. Is that how you see it? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that's that's actually sort of the, the company motto is sort of the for ImpluteOS to sort of become the de facto operating system for the sort of single-purpose computer, 
if you have a computer that does a single task, then sort of a unikernel is is something you might consider for that thing. Now, single single task computers might be sort of your it might be your toaster, it might be your load balancer. Uh, it probably isn't your TV anymore because like the TV has like apps and stuff, and that doesn't really work with unikernels because you can only have one app. So like a a, a computing resource that only does one thing. That's basically sort of a, a good sign that, that it might actually run the Unikernel. We've talked about Unikernels on the show before, and I've really thought that they were very cool and seems like they should meet some mainstream use that we should just see them used more broadly. But as Pierre pointed out, it's a complementary technology. It's not the only thing that we can expect to see going forward and eventually we're going to go from containers oh, those are heavy we're going to go to the unikernels well it's it's more complicated than that unikernels have a niche to fill but they're not going to take over the world and I, I thought that was a, a helpful perspective as we all try to figure out how they fit into things what uh, what grabbed your attention chris you know i just like the idea of when is x going to die because of y you know when is this technology going to kill the other technology and my thought was for better or worse nothing ever dies in it except for vampire taps those are dead right i mean right please tell me you're not using vampire taps in your data center they're they're dead buddy they're dead excellent Pierre, you just mentioned uh, the starting of, of Include OS, maybe using it as the default method for i don't know if it would be right to say packaging a unikernel but um but but tell us about it. Why why did you launch Include OS? What problems were you trying to solve? Because uh, there are certainly other Unikernel OSs that are out there. Yeah, so it started with with the the, the company founder, which is Alfred Bratteru. So he was working as a researcher on uh, in in Oslo, and he was doing research on sort of scalability of hypervisors. And to do some experiments, he wanted to run one hundred thousand VMs on a single physical server. But quickly sort of started running out of memory, uh, even though it sort of tried to make the VMs as small as possible. It couldn't really make them small enough. So so he sort of started looking into sort of what would it take to actually to create the smallest VM possible? Like what what's the smallest stuff that you can get away with? And then sort of ended up writing a bootloader and sort of having it sort of say hello world. And then was able to sort of conduct this experiment and then sort of this thing, sort of looking into sort of how hard would it be to sort of maybe do networking, like answer ping packets. Uh, and so after a while, it started answering ping packets. And then after answering ping packets, UDP was really trivial. And then sort of implementing a little DNS server. And then TCP came along. And after a while, HTTP and so on. And, and basically, suddenly, it was this big thing. So w- when you were adding all of those networking components, were you folks writing those? Or Alfred, was he writing these from scratch, custom, to be super compact and, and, and functional as necessary, but no more? Or was he pulling in existing code and you know, recompiling it to work you know, with this new VM format he was working with? Now, all of all of the code was actually written from scratch. I think there are the only exception is the HTTP parser, which we've taken from Nginx, I think, because like that's a really well defined component. 
yeah the re- the rest of 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 include us is 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 written uniquely i mean we we've looked at for instance we have like a couple of networking drivers uh Virtio and vmx net3 and of course we sort of peeked at other open source drivers to see how they are implemented but that, that's about it this is a nerdy detail about the networking stack but uh but but that that's where my brain goes sometimes when you got into writing the TCP driver, there are so many variants of TCP you could have chosen to deal with, for example, uh, high throughput over a high latency network and you know, these sorts of things. Did you just stick with plain vanilla TCP or did you pick a particular variant? No, we have basically we looked at the, the RFCs. So we sort of defined TCP according to IETF as opposed to sort of – so I think like – I think that later that's caused a bit a bit of a confusion because like Linux <laughs> Linux refers to a socket being something different than ITF refers how refer, uh, what what it means by 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 a socket but 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 we just took basically the the RFCs and and just implemented the, everything after the RFCs and turns out you can actually do that and that actually works the RFCs are really good and so we have uh, and the RFCs also I mean there, there's stuff that you can add uh, there's a sort of minimum uh, there's there, there's some minimum requirements for what the host should be. I can't remember the number of it, but I think that like that just says it, it's named something like uh, minimum requirements for internet host or something. And then there, there's stuff that you can add. Like uh, currently, just just now, we're just working on sort of I think selective ACK uh, to do like to deal with. Uh, with uh, high throughput over lossy networks over uh, with with latency, so that you do, you don't have to flush the whole TCP socket every time you lose a packet, and and I think like we probably will be doing that for the next five years because the, the, <laughs> it's like the, I mean there's so much stuff out there that you can support. Well, and, and it's going to be right. I think it'll be use case driven. The user community that's uh, using include OS is saying, "Hey, could you guys update the TCP stack to do X because I'm operating in this particular environment and that would solve a problem for me." Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, uh, currently it's it's actually sort of it, it's where we can actually do really useful stuff with it, and it's actually also quite fast. So we haven't really done any sort of tuning. To it, I think like primarily most of the reason why it's fast is because it doesn't do anything else, and also it's small, so it's really cache friendly. But I think like on average, when we route packets through IncludeOS, we see that we, we manage to push through somewhere between 10 and 15 percent more packets when we push it through IncludeOS than uh, when we push them through Linux. That's on the same hardware. Hmm. No, that's interesting, and and I, I kind of wanted to divert a little bit towards the presentation that you did in Bergen, more specifically around, okay, how do I actually stand up include OS? Kind of where is it running? What's what, what's kind of like life of the operator to put it into play? Uh, just kind of at a, you know, again, kind of a, where's the dashboard? Where are the components running? How do I get started with it? And I've correct yeah. me for mom, I believe most of it is available open source. You could You can kick the tires with this thing today if you wanted to. Absolutely. So you go to includeOS.org. You basically just Cut and paste to your shell there. <laughs> so we just basically just git clone us, and and there's uh, inside there there's an install dot sh, and you run that, and it'll basically just install in your home directory. And what that will do is it'll set up your your, your cross compiler, 
the whole build environment so that you can actually from that moment on build operating systems really easily. Okay. Uh, so, kind, so of, kind of bootstraps it on your system so that you can begin deploying with Include OS. Yeah, yeah. So then you have you you create a new fo- uh, folder. Uh, you go in there. You create a C++ file uh, called service.cpp. It might contain hello world or something. And then you basically just type boot dot because uh, we're kind of cheeky in just taking the boot command because like nobody else has made a command that's called boot. So we grabbed that. <laughs> uh, so it, it felt <laughs> felt weird. Uh, but then we just type boot dot, and what that will do is it'll actually just put in place a building system, and then it will build that application slash OS, and then it actually will feed it into QEMU, so KEMU, and then just boot it actually up. So sort of so I, I typically do do my like a hello world demo. And I try to to just do it really, really fast. So instead of using VI or Emacs, I just use cat and just cat into a file and just type it because I typically manage to write the or write hello world correctly the first time. Uh, and then just boot it up and and sort of and that whole demo takes like twenty five seconds. So during that time, you just actually you write and boot up an operating system, which I, I think is kind of cool that you sort of can do that with. In, in just a matter of matter of seconds. Are there other examples that are kind of included with it, or are we more saying it's really up to you, the person that's playing around with it, to write the C++? Yeah, no, there, there, are, there are some examples. There's, uh, I think now there's a router. I think just this week we just merged a firewall, and there's an HTTP server. Somewhere there's an IRC server as well. I think that's that's mainly it, and there are a few sort of uh, more less useful examples as well. So I kind of like the idea of the IRC server because it feels really meta to take something. <laughs> that, that it, it's a very hostile environment to join. And if you ever join a, a typical IRC channel, they're very hostile, and the expectation yes. is that you are an expert. And to, and to meld that with something kind of new and sexy that is the, the, the well, sort of new, new to me, Unikernel world, and have yeah, that running yeah. on there, that would feel. I would make a unikernel channel just to uh, to troll <laughs> on the IRC folks. Yes. Okay, so so you have the application running now. Is it just shell based control? Is there a dashboard? You know, how, how do I work with the the unikernels that I deploy after I bootstrap yeah. the environment? Yeah. So typically, would if you go and sort of want to deploy it on Google or whatever, you basically just set up a new VM uh, and you upload. Uh, you, you take the file system image that sort of the build system spits out. You can maybe then convert it to VMDK if you want to upload it to VMware, and then then you basically run it. Now we have also created a dashboard that and that dashboard is is basically how we plan to make money. So that's basically our proprietary tool. Uh, I'm hoping that we'll be able to sort of, once it matures, that we can sort of use it to provide like a free service, like an entry-level service at least. So maybe you can have like five or 10 VMs managed for free or something. But but generally sort of orchestration is is how we plan to sort of finance further development. Uh, so there's a dashboard that, that you, you can... Um, yeah, that, that we will sort of turn into a, a, a product. There's also one other thing which sort of makes, uh, which we've done in order to try to make, uh, to, to sort of make managing the unikernels less 
cumbersome, which is so the difference between one of the differences between between a Unix system and a Unikernel system is the Unikernel system everything in is in a single address space. Now, it gives us the ability to, to do one thing, which I think is is quite cool. So if your application is running on Linux and let's say that you're accepting a TCP connection. If you want to sort of store that somewhere, store that state, there's no way to do that because like there's a kernel component of that TCP socket, which is basically unavailable to you because it resides with, within the kernel. And that's in in like ring one in this, no, ring zero in the, the CPU. And you can't really see what's going on there. Since you and the kernels have a single address space, you can basically just read that whole uh, that object or that struct that actually sort of that that manifests the the tcp socket actually suspend that and so what we've done is is we created a system where you can boot up a union kernel and then let's say that you can make some changes to your code you add some new functionality you fix some bugs and you can actually upload a new version of your application into that existing unikernel. And what mm. it'll do is it'll actually sort of write down the state of the running application, then boot the new kernel. It's not really boot, but it'll just basically just execute it. And then it'll restore the state. And that gives us the opportunity to basically replace running applications or operating systems without losing state. So for a load balancer, for instance, we would, would keep the TCP connections alive uh, during an upgrade. And then you can sort of, you can use that to actually replace 100% of the code that's running there because there's afterwards the old code gets discarded. So there's actually nothing left. And we replace 100% of the code without actually losing state and without having more than somewhere between, I think like 10 and uh, maybe 10 and 80 milliseconds of downtime. Hold on, that, there's a lot to unpack there. So we, we yeah. have a we have an application running on a unit kernel, you know, version A, and yeah. you want to deploy version B. There's some yeah. state associated with the running unit kernel. You're basically saying you're kind of going to pin the state off to the side for a moment, destroy the existing unit kernel, replace it with the version B code unit kernel, and then kind of restore the state back into it. And that's all kind of the automated process so that so that the session state going into it would be would be held is that kind of the high level yes going in there okay because yeah, i imagine yeah, so. that would happen fast enough that there i'm imagining there there might not even be any user impact to this no there there i mean there there might be like uh i would say it perhaps there would be a measurable impact but it would not be a noticeable impact yeah if you yeah. see the yeah because I'm seeing, like, maybe if it's a, a farm of these unikernels leading up to some kind of distribution layer, like a load balancer, then mm. perhaps <laughs> it's kind of interesting because then the session state might be stored northbound anyways. If it's like a shopping cart type of thing. But at least at the lower bound, you could kind of start doing these replacements. And maybe even the distribution layer wouldn't notice it or the or the load balancer layer wouldn't necessarily notice it. I doubt, I doubt it's looking at a 10 millisecond or 5 millisecond loss. I don't know. That's... It's kind of got me, my brain's kind of wiggling around all over the place trying to think of yeah. how awesome that would be. <laughs> yep. Because we're also talking really small amounts of data, right, from a, a code deployment. The unikernels aren't heavy, so it's not like we're talking about a 40 gigabyte virtual machine with the operating system and all that stuff that goes <laughs> with it. We're talking about kilobytes, um, not, maybe megabytes, right? 
Well, Chris, we, we've also talked uh, talked on the show about instantiating a unikernel on the fly in response to an inbound request. So, mm. yeah, the speeds here we're talking about are, are amazing. You know, Ethan, continuing in my tradition so far in the show of, of doing kind of cheeky, fun takeaways, I would like to say that as we talked about RFCs, the one that popped in my head was the best RFC, and that's 2324. And if you don't know about that one, go read it. It'll teach you more than you ever want to know about coffee pots and teapots and whatnot. What about you, Ethan? <laughs> the thing that grabbed my attention, well, there was actually two things. One was he talked about Alfred Broderug, pardon if I mispronounce his name, as having this goal of running 100,000 VMs on a physical server. The fact that that's even conceivable, that you can even could I actually do this and, and have it be a realistic question? I think that says a lot about the state of our efficiencies and maybe inefficiencies in IT and the way we're consuming memory and the way we consume CPU and so on. Uh, I don't I don't know that Pierre actually said that he got to that 100,000 um, VMs on a physical server goal or not as he was rebuilding all of this, but got it, got it down to some really tiny memory footprints. And that was that really impressed me. Uh, and the the other thing that stuck out to me was just this notion of state maintenance between versions. This idea that you can uh, take a snapshot of state, reversion the app, bring it back up, and then phase that state back in, and have that happen as he put it in a way that might be measurable but not noticeable was just wow. That's just a game changer for me. Just because the normal process for any sort of an upgrade is this. Move the state somewhere else. Better get everybody off of these systems uh, so that we can go ahead and upgrade them. What what a game changer to be able to use systems that can be upgraded on the fly like that and still maintain user state. Well, now that Pierre has blown our minds around upgrading unikernels and has established quite a quite a lengthy story uh, that I enjoyed hearing on kind of the history of compute and how we led to the the world of unikernels. Let's talk about practical applications and the use cases that we're seeing in, in the field, you know, and things that IncludeOS is doing with their product. The one that I heard you talk about quite a bit at the presentation back in Norway was NFV, Network Function Virtualization. And I think that lends itself well to the idea of these really small you know, uh, code, little, little package pieces of code that are deployed kind of all over the place. But can, can you walk us down that path, how people are using NFV and the unikernels with ImcludeOS to solve real-world use cases? Yeah. So so um, that that was actually one of the first things we started working on was was NFVs. So primarily load balancing really was the was the first use case. So the reason why it's it's a it's something that almost everyone needs. You need a little balancer, and it's also one of the things where, like, I can, like, I can give you a, a like a blank list, five bullet points. Write down what the load balancer is. I can write down five bullet points myself, and we can compare those notes. And like, four out of those five points would probably match. Like, we are basically all in agreement what the load balancer is. So that's why we we started with load balancers. So they're nice and small, and also and well defined, and and also their performance. There's some performance requirements there, which I think like we could solve in a nice way. Yeah, there's also some other sort of tasks. Uh, so I think like last week somebody uh, asked me if we could do like just in time DHCPD. So they have this uh, 
huge environment with thousands of VMs and, and they, every day they're sort of provisioning up new networks and like they would like to have like a DHCPD that could just pop into a network for like 10 seconds to just configure a single host or a group of hosts and then go away again. Well, that's a weird one because of the state maintenance that's required there that's implicit in DHCP. Oh, no, no, because you all, they only need it because they have like VM templates that use DHCP. But once they boot up, the VM connects to their um, configuration management system and gets a sort of persistent configuration. So they only need uh, DHCP uh. once. It's like hiring a Sherpa to get up the mountain and then you don't need them anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah interesting. <laughs> interesting use case. Yeah. So there are a bunch of things like that. Firewall was also, I think, firewall is something I think we solved in a really, really cool way. So, like, Linux, the Linux firewall is, is like, very average. Uh, it's basically just you have these IP tables command. Uh, those manipulate uh, data structures in memory, basically linked lists with rules. Packets come in. Uh, they get compared to every rule in the linked list. And if it, if it matches, you get an action. You either accept or drop the packet. What we've done is is we've taken we've defined a new programming language for for firewalls, uh, where you basically de- define these firewall rules in a sort of high level uh, language, and we then transpile that to C and then to binary code and then inject them into the firewall, the firewall application. The cool thing about that is of course that you get this executes at a really really it executes really, really fast because the compiler now gets to sort of optimize your firewall rules. And I don't know about you guys, but I have like a lot of respect for, for compilers. We, we sort of, we've, it's been amazing to see sort of what sort of performance gains we can sort of squeeze out of an application just by sort of messing with the compiler, switching to another compiler, turning on things like uh, link time optimizations and things like that. We've seen like performance increases of 20% just by sort of dealing with the compiler. So when the compiler optimizes the firewall, that means that it can also use multiple execution units on the same CPU to to execute these firewall rules in parallel, even on a single CPU. So this, uh, that's a cool example of somewhere where we're able to take something that, that originally was sort of a disadvantage, namely that we had to rely on the compiler and and actually leverage that that and that forced us into a design that actually turned out to be better better than what it would have been otherwise mm. the reason why of course why linux can't do this is because they, they need to ship an operating system that doesn't rely on a compiler and of course like who would trust the system where you basically just can inject blobs from user space into kernel space and have them run there. Yeah. That Equifax would. Oh, wait, did I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> here, I want to talk about the, the, the latency a, a little bit here because there's latency of actually instantiating the Unicurl and have it being to a place where it's ready to accept a request. Now that it's up and running, are there more latency characteristics of that object that are worth talking about? So, like, like there's – if you sort of – if you try to do just a, a very simple task on Linux, I really like Linux, by the way, and it just sounds like I'm sort of on, on hammering on it the whole time. You'll notice that there's actually quite a bit of jitter. And there's like, I don't know how many these days, but I think like somewhere between 20 and 30 kernel threads running. 
on a like a Linux system, maybe even more. And those get scheduled from time to time. And when when a kernel threads get scheduled, that basically means that it trashes the CPU cache on that CPU core, uh, and that leads to a lot of of variance in in the latency. Now, <laughs> this was sort of an old uh, old thing, but we got to talk talking to somebody dealing with sort of high frequency trading, and we're sort of playing around with the idea of, of using include OS for for high frequency trading. Uh, and we, we were a bit sort of defensive because sort of we, we're missing all these features. Like there's Linux can do all sorts of stuff. Like they have like threads and they can sort of schedule processes. And it turns out like like they, they really sort of everything that we said we're missing, they were sort of grateful that we're missing it because the only thing that they, they, they try as hard as they can to sort of disable that stuff in Linux, like... Well, well, high frequency trading—they they need a very predictable uh, transaction period, and anything that could throw variableness into that is a, is a disadvantage for those guys. If I understand their processes right, yeah, I mean, they're not that much in, interested in the predictability as in the sort of lowest absolute number. So there, there are two there are two kinds of of, of 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 systems there. So so we have like medical systems or weapon systems, and and there you want predictability, like. And then you want you have the real-time operating system, and you, you say to the operating system, "Can you give me a guarantee that I can have this done in eight microseconds?" And it says yes. And then you have like eight microseconds, come hell or, or high water, like it'll it deliver on that promise every every time. It, it might be quite slow to do that uh, because it needs to like preempt the process in order to give that guarantee. So there's a lot of overhead in those systems. So typically, like Linux will actually beat a real-time system with regards to latency, uh, probably like nine times out of ten, uh, just because Linux doesn't have the overhead of doing of of trying to deliver these guarantees. However, what it the problem with Linux is, of course, that it has these random spikes in latency. Uh, so even though it might be sort of quicker than a real-time system. On average, it will, sometimes it'll spike. Where Unikernel can actually sort of actually give you the best best of both worlds because you have so good control over what gets scheduled that you can actually sort of very easily give hard guarantees for what the the latency will be, and you don't have like random stuff that gets scheduled on the CPU. So you, you, you're pretty, you, you can be very, very deterministic and also very, very fast. Yeah. So going back to the HFT guys then, right, they don't care about the uh, predictability as much. They're just trying to get every edge that they can all the way down to the, uh, the microsecond level and are finding an advantage with, uh, with, with unikernels. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's still sort of more research than than development actually at this point in time but i, I think it'll, it, it would surprise me if the hft guys don't at least like one of these guys will have to pick up unicorns because it will give them an, an <laughs> yeah. enormous trading advantage I, I was reading an article recently that was talking about funtainers you know uh, functions as a service running in containers and serverless and I thought that was a funny word, but uh, but <laughs> the, the, the question is more around unikernels and FAS or server serverless would play in that space because my mind's thinking that might be a great use case because functions as a service are ultimately, hey, here's a piece of code, execute it, and then sort of go away, and that feels very likened to the architecture of a unikernel. Is that 
true? Is this happening or, or no? I, I mean, currently it's it's not happening. I I think there's some researchers at IBM which I think are actively doing research into uh, ImcludeOS as a basis for sort of that kind of stuff. Uh, but but I think it's 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 reasonably good match actually. If we use sort of the right kind of hypervisors, we we have these boot times that are sort of below ten uh, microseconds, and of course that means that you can actually respond to a function as a service call. You don't have to have have any resources pre-allocated. You can just basically respond to to the more or less respond to the, the requests as, as they come in yeah and you can also sort of uh, since also the state is so simple you can do things like like suspend to disk actually we haven't implemented that but but suspend to disk for unikernel would be actually really simple basically it's the same things that we're doing when we're doing these updates which also also means that that the unikernel can probably sleep without taking up any memory and then it can reboot and get back. So even if you have sort of stateful serverless containers, that actually could be possible to do. But yeah, we're not doing that much there ourselves because it's kind of, I mean, even if you created the world's greatest fast platform, as long as you're not sort of Google, Amazon, or Microsoft or IBM, you likely won't get anywhere with it. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Pierre, do you see ImcludeOS making its way into the the IoT world? Uh, it's just you know, Unikernel's broadly that massive reduction in the attack surface because there's so much less actually going on that can be attacked. It seems like maybe there's a good use case here. The, the IoT world is is very complex. Um, uh, like one thing is that there's a seems like there's a new operating system for IoT launched every month. You have the, the super small devices, basically the battery powered ones. I don't think ImcludeOS is relevant there at all. Those guys maybe have like, maybe if they're lucky, they have a hundred kilobytes of flash. Just there's no way we can sort of force the operating system down to that, that kind of level. However, there there is this this mid-range IoT devices. If you if you say that like the Tesla is a like a high high end or or the the bigger IoT devices, you have these mid-range devices which typically are some sort of gateways that, that may be bridging some sort of high efficiency radio protocol towards rest or something like there's a myriad so those devices are actually i believe quite suited well suited for for something like include os because like include os is reasonably efficient the the, the programming model event driven programming model would match the programming model on the other devices, so that the developers would actually know that. Linux is big and rather chubby, so that we could you could probably save a lot on on sort of things like Flash. The only thing is probably missing is like proper ARM support, um, and ARM support seems to be kind of cumbersome because there seems to be. 50 different kinds of system on the chips and they all boot <laughs> slightly differently. So if you're sort of waiting on for include OS on ARM, uh, I wouldn't recommend holding your breath. But it, it, I, I mean, if if, if, if I had the time, I would really like to see it happen because I think it's, for these mid-range devices, I don't think Linux is, seems to be doing that good of a job there. And I believe it's a generally sort of unsolved problem. And it would be great to try to do that. 
Okay, Pierre. I mean, we've we've gone deep, and I do appreciate that because I think unikernels are, are really interesting, and I, I appreciate you jumping on the show after kind of bugging you while I was traveling all over the place after seeing you in Norway. Uh, so for those that want to go deeper into Include OS or, or perhaps reach out with you on the social media world, where can they reach you, and where's uh where's Include OS located on the webs? Yeah, so Includeos is yeah on the web. It's www.includeos.org. That's the home of the open source uh, project Includeos. There'll be a .com website hopefully within a couple of weeks. We'll be sort of talking a bit more about sort of the commercial side of things and um, yeah, so on. If you want to sort of learn more uh, about unikernels, so one of the cool things about unikernels is they kind of it in some way united a bit. So we talk a bit to the other unikernels, and and uh, they're not really competing. They're 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 really different. All the different unikernels. So ours is the sort of the one that's focused on performance. There's another one that's focused on security, etc. So they don't really overlap, uh, and they all come together at www.unikernel.org. And uh, there's some occasional discussions on devil.unikernel.org. I think that those three places are, are, are likely where we should sort of find out more about InclusOS and, and Unikernels in general. Right on. Well, again, thank you very much for joining the show. And uh, that's it for today's edition of the Data Nuts podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. My blog is wallnetwork.com. Or my delightful friend, Ethan, he's at EC Banks on Twitter, and he's blogging at PacketPushers.net. For more of our Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is PacketPushers.net. You'll find us talking about containers, certifications, conferences, PowerShell, unikernels, moving to the cloud. You name it, we got it. There's so much more available there. And until then, may your server lights blink, your unikernels be plentiful, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank you.